Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a different country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything to eat. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near his house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father God, we just get the opportunity here today uh, just to look at an incredible story, Father. And God, there, there is so much that is going on in this text, and in the time that we have, God, I can only scratch the surface of it. And so, Lord, I, I pray that today I would just say the things that you most want said, God. I would pray the message that you most want to get out is the message that is received here today, Father. And God, I I just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would do the supernatural here today, God, that you would speak through me and you would speak and open up the hearts of of all of, of, of the people who are gathered here today. And so, God, we just give this time over to you and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. As I said, we're continuing the series, uh, The Kingdom, and what we're doing in the series is we are looking at the parables of Jesus. Uh, Some of you may not know this, may be a little surprised to hear this, so the video did a good job explaining it, but when Jesus was here on this earth, uh, probably the thing that he was most known for, he was most known for being a teacher. In fact, the favorite title that was given to Jesus by many was the title of rabbi, which is essentially a title that means teacher. And Jesus uh, loved to use a lot of tools in his teaching, but one of the tools he employed the most is he loved to tell stories. And they, in the Bible, are called parables. And some of the most enduring, lasting, some of the most famous teachings that we have of Jesus exist in the form of these stories. And today, we get an opportunity to look at what is probably the most famous story that Jesus ever told. And not only is it the most famous story that Jesus ever told, it's actually one of the most famous stories ever told, period. And that is this parable that we just read. It's commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. It's the story of this father who has this rebellious son who turns against him, leaves the house only to hit rock bottom. 
And when he uh, realizes the error in his ways, he comes back to his father, and he is met not with judgment and condemnation. He's met with love and grace and mercy. It is one of the most famous stories ever told. And because it is so famous, it's really my belief that it's also one of the most misunderstood stories ever told. Uh, Understand, men and women, that Jesus didn't tell parables just to tell stories. He told him to teach a point. He told him to teach a lesson, a lesson about the kingdom of God, which is what Matthew talked about last week, which is where we got the title for this series. And the kingdom of God is just another way to say that God is on his throne and his rule and his reign is beginning to break into this world. And and the parables are, are, are meant to teach us something about God's kingdom, something about God, something about us, and ultimately how we can live as citizens of God's kingdom. And uh, as someone who's grown up in the church, I'm talking about myself here, I've heard this parable taught so many different times, but I really think that we often miss the main point, the main lesson that Jesus is trying to get across. And so our goal here today is really simple. We want to try to figure out what is Jesus teaching us through this parable? What is the lesson about God's kingdom that Jesus is trying to get across? And in order to answer that question, just to warn you, we got to do a little bit of work today. Uh, This is going to be kind of a very heavy teaching message, a very heavy content message, but we have to go through this section by section and point out some things that may not be immediately obvious. And so there's going to be a lot of work involved today, but hopefully there'll be a payoff at the end of all of this. Now, as you can tell, this is a rather long parable, and so uh, for the sake of simplicity, it does break into three sections pretty simply. So I want to give these to you up front, and if you like to mark your Bibles, you may want to indicate this somehow in your Bible. Uh, I really have divided this uh, particular section into three acts, and so I'll give them to you. The first act is verses 11 through 12, and I have called this one, Act 1, The Introduction. So you may want to bracket out verses 11 through 12 in your Bible right next to it, Act 1, The Introduction. The second section is verses 13 through 24, and I have entitled this, Act 2, The Younger Son. So you may want to bracket out verses 13 through 24 right next to it, Act 2, The Younger Son. So Act 1, the introduction, Act 2, the younger son, and then finally, verses 25 through the end of the parable, uh, through the end of the chapter, verse 32, that's Act 3, the older son. So you may want to make note of that. So that's how this parable splits up, 11 through 12, Act 1, the introduction, 13 through 24, Act 2, the younger son, 25 through 32, Act 3, the older son. So let's begin with Act 1. Let's begin with the introduction. I'm going to read verses 11 and 12 again, and then we'll see what it says. This is what we read. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So there we have it. That's the introduction. On its surface, very simple. And it is a very simple premise and setup to this story. As Jesus says there, there is a father. He had two sons. One day, the younger son comes to him and says, Dad, give me my share of the estate. Essentially, Dad, give me my share of the inheritance right now. And the dad says, okay, splits his property between his sons. So very, very simple, but here's what you have to understand about the introduction. It would have been positively shocking in Jesus' day to hear this introduction. This, This request that the younger son made was unheard of. Understand, men and women, that for a son to ask his father for his share of the inheritance while his father is still living and has many years left, that was an extreme insult. And not only was it an insult, It was really tantamount to wishing your father dead. When this younger son, when he comes to his father and he says, Dad, give me my share of the estate. Basically what he's saying is, Dad, I'm tired of waiting around till you die. 
I'm tired of waiting around till you die so I can spend the family money however I want to spend it. I'm tired of submitting to your authority. I'm tired of submitting to your rules. So give me my share of the money so I can go and do whatever I want. I mean, really what this son is saying is he's saying, Dad, I want to live as though you are no longer alive. So this is a very shocking, insulting introduction to this parable. And I would imagine that Jesus' original audience, as they are hearing Jesus tell these first couple of sentences here, that there would have been audible gasps in the audience. (gasps) That people would not believe that the Son would make such a request. Uh, and, And they would hope that they would know what the Father would do next. Really what they hoped that the father would do is he would say to his son, absolutely not. In fact, get out of my sight. This is insulting. You have brought shame on me. You have brought shame on yourself. You are no longer worthy to be called my son. But is that what the father does? No. Instead, the father fulfills the son's request. He does what the son asks of him. So this is pretty surprising. And all the, all the, all already, just after the first couple of verses, we are already beginning to form an opinion of this younger son, and it's not a positive one. Basically, what's going through our mind right now if we're listening to Jesus tell this for the first time is what snot-nosed little punk would have the audacity to make such a request? So that's act one, that's the introduction, and that's what leads us into act two. And what Jesus does in act two now is he zeroes in on this younger son. And he tells us what this younger son does with his inheritance. And basically, in the first few verses of act two, The opinion that we formed about the younger son from Act 1, it is confirmed. In in other words, the son proves himself to be a snot-nosed little punk. And there's a few things that make that clear. First of all, when the son receives his share of the estate, what is it that he does? Well, we see that in the first part of verse 13. It says, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country. So this son gets all his possessions, and he leaves the house, once again insulting. Sons did not leave the nest in the first century like they did today. Sons actually were expected to take over the family business. And so for this son to leave his father, he is really saying, I want nothing to do with my family, I want nothing to do with my dad. So that's the first thing. Second thing. He gets his money, he gets to this foreign country, and what does he do with it? Well, you see that as you continue on in that verse, it says that there he squandered his wealth in wild living. He squandered his wealth in wild living. The word translated squander means to scatter, like scattering of a seed. And it gives the picture that this son was just burning through this money at an alarming rate, spending the equivalent of tens and thousands of dollars maybe every single day. And what was he spending it on? Was he giving this money to orphanages and widows? No, what was he doing? It says he was squandering it in wild living. This is Jesus' way of saying that this guy became a playboy. He became a partier. Uh, He was spending his money on things that you shouldn't spend your money on. So that's the second thing. And then thirdly, surprise, surprise, he runs out of his money. And when he does, we're told that there's a famine that hits the particular region that he is in. And so this man has to get a job in order to get something to eat. And what job does he end up taking? Do you remember He ends up taking a job feeding pigs. You read that in verse 15. And once again, there would have been a gasp in Jesus' audience. Why? Because pigs were considered unclean in the Jewish faith. You weren't really supposed to go near them. And no self-respecting Jew would ever take a job feeding a pig. 
And so you put all this together, and really what Jesus is describing here is he is describing an absolutely despicable character. I mean, this is a scum of the earth sort of character. And it's clear that other people think that way too, because at the end of verse 16, we're told that he has to beg for food and that no one will give him anything. The whole country knows what a horrible person this is. And he has essentially hit rock bottom. Let me read to you this quote from pastor teacher John MacArthur. He writes the following. The young man's life had become a nightmarish horror. This was life at its very lowest. He had left a fine home and a bright future under a wonderfully loving and generous father. And now he had come to this without friends, family, or hope in a foreign land with nowhere to turn. The party was over for sure. The party was over for sure. And indeed, This is one of the most tragic tales that we come across today, isn't it? When someone with so much promise ends up wasting all that they had. I was remembering this past week. I was in a fraternity when I was at USC. And, uh, you know, every single year we'd get a new crop of freshmen into the fraternity. And, And some of these kids, they were like the best and the brightest of their high schools. They were the valedictorians and the salutatorians and the star athletes and so on. But then they would get to USC and they would end up falling in with the wrong crowd. Namely, the guys in my fraternity. (laughs) And uh, they would end up, some of them would end up getting really heavily into partying and drugs and alcohol and sex and all of that. And it was interesting, at the beginning of every school year, we'd kind of take inventory of who returned. And we noticed that there were some guys who started out with us as freshmen uh, that, that weren't back for their sophomore year. And we would follow up with them and we'd find out that they had flunked out of school. And yeah, it's kind of sad to hear about that, but it was really hard to feel sympathy for them. Because they did this to themselves. In fact, all of us could see that this was coming. We weren't surprised when we found out who had flunked out. Many of us, in fact, had tried to warn these kids, hey, you got to ease up a little bit. But they wouldn't listen to them. So this is their own doing. And that's how we feel about this younger son here. Yeah, it's kind of sad where he is, but it's hard to feel sympathy for him because he did this to himself. These were his choices. And really, at the end of the day, all you can hope is that when someone hits rock bottom, that they sort of begin to realize what has happened to them, and they begin to turn their life around. And that seems to be what happens to this younger son. When we get to the beginning of verse 17, it says there that he comes to his senses. And so he sort of looks around, and he realizes what a mess he has made of his life. And so he decides to do something about it. And it's here he comes up with a plan he realizes that he probably won't be accepted back into his family. He has insulted his father too much. This was extreme honor-shame culture. He has shamed his father too much. And so he'll never be accepted back into his family as a son. But he realizes that his father's servants, his father's slaves, are being treated even better than he is. And so his plan is this. He's going to come back to his father, and he's going to say, Father, I know I can't be your son, but hire me on as one of your servants. Because even that, would be better than what I'm facing right now. And so that's the plan he comes up with. And again, if you're Jesus' audience, you hope you know how this is going to turn out. You hope that the Father will do what he should have done in the first place. Absolutely not. Get out of my sight. You You have insulted our family too much. I do not know you. I do not want any relationship with you whatsoever. That's what you hope the Father does. But is that what the Father does? No. Instead, when the son returns, we get to what is probably one of the most famous scenes in the entire Bible. We'll pick it up in verse 20 of Luke chapter 15. This is what we read. So he, the younger son, got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. 
He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. So what happens when this younger son comes home? He deserves punishment. He deserves shame. He deserves to be humiliated. But instead he finds love, mercy, grace, forgiveness. We're told that while he's still a long ways off, the father sees him. Now understand, men and women, the father did not know that that's the day his son was going to return. And so the impression that we get is that the father has been waiting for his son every day, perhaps, scanning the horizon, wondering, is this the day that my son's going to return? And when he sees his son, rather than be filled with anger, it says he's filled with compassion. And that compassion drives him to do something that Middle Eastern men did not do in the first century. He runs to his son. Jewish fathers did not run. That was considered undignified. That's something little kids did. But this father does not care about his dignity. He cares about his son. So he runs to his son. And when he gets to his son, he embraces him, we're told. He kisses him. He calls him son. In other words, he welcomes him back into the family. And then he does the unthinkable. He throws a party for him. He throws a party for his playboy, rebellious, sinful son. He celebrates his son's return. And it's obvious what is going on here, right? It's obvious what is going on here. This parable that Jesus tells is an allegory. Each of the major characters in this parable refers to someone else. The father very clearly represents God the father. The younger son very clearly represents the rebellious sinner. And what this parable is, is it's a picture of how God treats sinners. It's a picture of how God treats sinners. This is the message that we give in this church every Christmas and every Easter. And it is the idea that you can never outrun God's grace. You can never outrun God's grace. I don't care how much sin you have in your past. I don't care how many people you slept with. I don't care how many drugs you have taken. I don't care how big your rebellion has been. If you like this younger son here, if you realize the error of your ways, if you come to your senses and you decide to turn towards God, when you turn towards God, you will not find judgment, you will not find condemnation. Instead, you will find a God who sees you and has compassion on you and runs to you and embraces you and kisses you, calls you his son, calls you his daughter, and we are told literally throws a party for you. This is a picture of how God treats sinners. You can never outrun the grace of God. And although this is the lesson that we learn from the younger son, and although this is usually the main lesson that is taught when this parable is taught, I do not believe, men and women, that this is the main point that Jesus is getting across here. The saga of the younger son, the forgiveness he receives, absolutely it is a lesson that we learn from this parable. But I don't think it's the main lesson Jesus wants us to learn. Now, how can I say that? Well, go back to Act 1. Go back to the introduction. How did this parable start out? Did Jesus say there was a man who had one son? Mm Mm-mm, what does it say? There was a man who had two sons. There's another member of this family. 
the older son, the older brother, how does he fit into all of this? Where has he been in all of this? Well, his story is what was told in Act 3. And if you're paying attention as we read, you would have heard that this older son has been doing everything that he's supposed to be doing. While his younger brother was out rebelling, living this playboy, sinful, reckless sort of lifestyle, this older son has been exactly where he should be. He's been right by his father's side. He's been obeying every single one of his father's orders. He's been doing everything that he's supposed to be doing. And that's why, as we read, the older son gets angry when he finds out that his younger brother has come home and his father has thrown him a party. And in the speech we'll look at in just a second, essentially what the older son does is he accuses his father of favoritism. Dad, you are doing something for my brother that you have never done for me. And the question that we have to answer is what is Jesus trying to teach us in this older son? Because he didn't have to include him, right? This parable could have ended at Act 2. It could have ended at verse 24. There could have been a father who had one son. And this would have made a very nice, neat, complete story with a great message. But Jesus doesn't end it there. He includes a second son. There must be some reason for it. What is he trying to get across? Well, in order to answer that question, let me fill you on a detail I haven't shared with you yet. Do you know why Jesus decides to share this particular parable at this particular time in his life? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Here, Luke gives us the context for this parable. And here's what he tells us. He tells us that when Jesus tells this parable, he is at a dinner party. This is a story that Jesus tells over dinner. And this is an interesting dinner party because at this dinner party, there are two very different groups of people. Luke tells us in verse 1 very clearly that there's a group of people he calls point-blank sinners. They're sinners. These are the irreligious people. These are the rebellious ones. These are the ones who don't care very much about God or faith or religion. Many of them have, in fact, turned their back on God. They've lived their lives however they want. These are the prostitutes. These are the dishonest tax collectors and so on. So there are sinners at this dinner party. But there's another group here as well. We learn about this group in verse 2, and Jesus tells us that there's a group of people that he calls Pharisees. Now, who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were you and me, okay? They were the churchgoers of the day. They were the religious ones of the day. Many of them have grown up in the Jewish faith, and they take their faith very seriously. In fact, they try to live their lives, as many of you do, they try to live their lives according to the will of God. Uh, The Pharisees were famous for identifying 613 commandments in the Old Testament that God gave. And every single day of their life, they try to abide by every single one of these 613 commandments. They're the ones who take their faith very seriously. So here you have these two opposite end of the spectrum groups at this particular dinner party. And in verse 2, Jesus tells us that the Pharisees begin complaining among themselves. And this is what they say. You see it at the end of verse 2. They say, this man, referring to Jesus, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Who do they sound like when they make that complaint? Who does that sound like? This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This man celebrates sinners. Sinners. Who does that sound like? 
I said, men and women, that this parable is an allegory, right? Each of the major characters in this parable stands for someone else. The father clearly represents God. The younger son clearly represents the rebellious sinner. Who do you think Jesus means the older brother to represent? The Pharisee. The Pharisee. Jesus puts the Pharisee in this parable in the form of the older brother. As I said, the Pharisee were the religious ones. They were the ones who tried to keep God's law, to do everything that God wanted them to do. But Jesus knows something about the Pharisees. Their heart is not pure. Their motivations are not right. And this is what we learn from the speech that Jesus puts on the, the lips of the older son. As I said, the older son has been seen by his father's side. He's been doing everything that he is supposed to be doing. But why has he been doing that? It is definitely not out of love for his father, because listen to how the older son describes his obedience to his father. We'll pick it up in verse 28 of Luke 15. This is what we read. The older brother became angry and refused to go into the party. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been, and what's that next word there? Slaving for you. Some of your Bibles say serving. It should say slaving. This older son describes his obedience in terms of slavery. And that is a window into the heart of the Pharisees. As they have obeyed God in every single one of these commandments, to them, it is like slavery. So why in the world have they continued to obey God? Well, that's what you find when you continue on this particular passage. We'll get, again, we'll pick it up in verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. What is the older son saying here? He's saying, Listen, dad. All these years, I have been by your side. I have done everything that you have asked me to do. And not once have you ever rewarded me. Not once have you ever thrown me a party. But then, this other son of yours, this, this playboy, this sinner, who squandered your money on prostitutes, he comes home, and you throw a party for him? You kill the best animal in the house for him? That doesn't make sense. And here we see the motivation of the older son. And here we see the motivation of the Pharisees. Why has the older son, why have the Pharisees, why have they stayed by their father? Why have they obeyed everything that the father wants them to do? It's not out of love. It's not even because it's the right thing to do. Because if that were the case, they wouldn't care that their younger brother got, got a party. Because they would say, yeah, dad, no, that's great. Throw my younger brother a party. I'm not in this for the reward. I'm not in this for the party. I do this because I love you. But the fact that they get jealous of this younger son and this party that he has, it shows their motivation. Why have they obeyed God? It's because they want something. They want to get something. They want a reward for their obedience. They want a party. You see, the older son has not stayed out of, uh, by his father out of love for his father. 
He hasn't stayed by his father because it's the right thing to do. He's been playing a game of quid pro quo. He's been playing a game of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. He thinks that if he stays by his father's side, the father now owes him something. The father now needs to reward him. He's now in debt to him because of his obedience. It's like what Tim Keller writes. He writes the following. The elder brother's unspoken demand is I have never disobeyed you. Now you have to do things in my life the way that I want them to be done. Really, this is manipulation, isn't it? And when you realize that, here's what you realize. The older son at the end of the parable is just as sinful as the younger son at the beginning of the parable. He's just as sinful. Now, the younger son's sin was that he he broke all of his father's rules. That is absolutely sinful. He rebelled against his father. That is absolutely a sin. The older son, he didn't break all his father's rules. As he says here, I have never disobeyed a single rule of yours, and the father doesn't refute that. He has done everything right, so what's his sin? He's done everything right, but he's done it for the wrong reasons. He's done everything right, but he's done it for the wrong reasons. And that's also a sin. I came across a story this past week that illustrates this uh, really well. It's a fairy tale. It's a story of a gardener in a far-off kingdom. And one day he is gardening in, in his little garden and he, and he pulls out a carrot. And instantly he can tell this is the best carrot I've ever grown before. And so he decides that he wants to give it to the king as a token of his love and respect for the king. So the next day he gets an audience with the king and he comes before him and he says, Your majesty, I'm a gardener. And this carrot is the best carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. And I want to give it as a sign of my love and my respect for you. And the king obviously is touched by this. He can discern the purity in the man's heart. And so he says to the gardener, well, thank you very much. You know, I can tell that you are a good steward of the earth. I happen to own a plot of land. It's right next to your garden. He says, I would like to give it to you free of charge. It's completely yours. All I ask is that you make this plot of land as beautiful as I'm sure your garden is. And the gardener is obviously thrilled by this, can't wait to go home and tell his wife. Meanwhile, there's a wealthy man who overhears this conversation between the king and the gardener. And he thinks to himself, gosh, if that's what you get from the king for giving him a carrot, imagine what you can get for giving him something better. And so the next day, this wealthy man comes into the king's presence, and he is, he is carrying, dragging behind him this beautiful, gorgeous black stallion. And he says to the king, he says, Your majesty, this is the best horse I have ever bred or ever will breed. I want to give it as a token of my love and my respect to you. And the king can discern the man's heart. And so he takes the horse, but he doesn't give him anything in return. And the man is obviously upset. And so he says to the king, "Uh, Excuse me, your majesty, but yesterday you gave a plot of land to a gardener for giving you a carrot. Don't I deserve at least as much for giving you this horse? And the king shakes his head and he says, no, you don't. For you see, the gardener was giving me the carrot. But you, you're giving yourself the horse. The gardener is giving me the carrot. But you're giving yourself the horse. That's the sin of the older brother. And that's the sin of the Pharisee. Yeah, they have obeyed every single one of God's 613 commandments. But why have they done it? Not out of love for God, not even because it's the right thing to do. They've done it because now they think that God owes them for it. 
That there's some sort of party, there's some sort of reward that they should get in exchange for their obedience. That, that life needs to turn out a certain way because of all that they have done for God. And when you put all this together, what you realize is that there is a little bit of older son, and there is a little bit of Pharisee in every single one of us. You see, the older son is a single woman in her 40s. 15 years ago, she broke off an engagement. Because she was praying and she felt as though God were leading her to do that. She knew that this man would never be the man of God that she uh, needed to marry. And so she did the right, but she did the difficult thing. It's now been 15 years. In these past 15 years, she has not even had another person that she could call a boyfriend. And as the years tick off and she remains in her singleness, she grows bitter and she grows angry. And one day she cries out to God, God, 15 years ago, I did what you wanted me to do. It was difficult. I love that man, but I did it because you told me to do it. You owe me now because of that, God. You owe me now a husband. The older son is the couple who can't have children of their own, and so they pray, and they feel as though God is leading them to adopt. And so they go, and they adopt a child, and they bring this child into their house. But as the child grows up, he turns out to be a nightmare, a terror, completely disobedient, completely disrespectful. And as they head to another school to pick him up, another school that he has been kicked out of, they grow bitter, and they grow angry, and they go resentful, and they cry out to God, God, we were simply doing what you had called us to do. Don't we deserve a break because of that? The younger son is a salesman in his company who knows that there's shady practices going on in his business. And so he prays and he seeks wise counsel and he decides that he needs to confront his bosses about it. And so he does. And not only does he get fired on the spot, but he actually gets taken to court and his reputation is dragged through the mug and he can't get another job. And in bitterness, he cries out to God, God, I have always tried to do what is right in life. And this is the thanks I get. And meanwhile, these older sons encounter younger sons. And as they encounter younger sons, the rebellious ones who turn their back on God, but then turn to Christ, and they see that they seem seem to get rewarded for it. For example, the, the single woman in her 40s, she meets the woman who in college slept around with tens of different men, but then she comes to Christ, and almost immediately she finds a wonderful, loving Christian husband, and they get married, and they have many wonderful years together. The couple who can't have children and have to adopt. They run into the couple who, before they got married, they slept together and they had an abortion because they got pregnant and they couldn't take care of the kid. But then they become to Christ and they realize the error in their ways and now they have six children all naturally and every single one is walking with the Lord. The the salesman encounters the former drug dealer turned Christian who God now blesses with an incredible business and a sterling reputation and a ton of wealth. And as these older sons encounter the younger sons, they grow more angry and more bitter and more upset, and they cry out to God, look, God, all these years I have been slaving for you. And this is the reward I get? You throw them a party? You give them everything I ever wanted? That doesn't make sense. And men and women, if you have ever been tempted to think that way, and who among us has not? And here's what you need to realize. It's also a sin. You can do all the right things and still sin because you do them for the wrong reason. And that's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. Pharisees, you are complaining because I'm having dinner with these sinners. Who in the world do you think you are? 
Yeah, you have obeyed every single one of my father's commandments, but why have you done that? Not out of love? Not because it's right? Because you think you are owed something in return. Don't you see, Pharisee? You're just as lost as the prostitute. You're just as much as a sinner as the the dishonest tax collector. And therefore, and this is key, you're just as much in need of God's grace. And that is the reason that Jesus tells this parable. Through the younger son, yes, we learn that we can never outrun God's grace, absolutely. But the main reason that Jesus teaches this parable is to address the Pharisee. And what is he telling us to the Pharisee? He's saying you can never outrun your need for God's grace. Because all of us are sinners. And every single one of us need the grace of God. And here's what I want you to hear, okay? God wants to give us that grace. Don't miss this, men and women. When the father realizes that the older son has not joined the party, what does he do? He does the same thing he did to the younger son. He goes out to him. We're told he pleads with him. Please, son, come into the party. Come and celebrate. God wants to give all of his children, Pharisee included, grace. He wants all his children to come into relationship with him. All you need to do is realize that you are in need of that grace. Again, Tim Keller says this, the main point of this parable is that to find God, we must repent of the things that we've done wrong, but we must also repent of the reason we ever did anything right. We must also repent of the reason we ever did anything right. Some of you are the prodigal. You're the younger son. You can never outrun God's grace. I don't care what you did this morning. You turn to God and you will find a God who forgives you. You can never outrun God's grace. But I would hazard to guess there's a lot of us in here. We're the older son. And we need to realize that we can never outrun our need for God's grace. When we get to heaven, there will not be a single soul save Jesus himself who is there because of his merits. We are all sinners. And we all need the grace of God. Do you believe that? Here's how we're going to close. We're going to close with communion. And I love communion. Because we all take the same communion. We don't have better communion for the better Christians and worse communion for the worse Christians, right? We all take the same juice. We all take the same bread. And so it is a reminder that we're all saved by grace. And so in just a second, you can actually stay in your seats. Danae is going to sing a song. We're actually going to pass plates to you. So it's a little bit different today. Just stay in your seats. When it comes by, grab the bread, grab the juice, hold on to it, because we will take it together as a church. But before we head into communion, would you do me a favor and just bow your heads with me right now? You know, some of you may observe that this parable ends open-ended. In other words, we don't know what the older son chooses to do. 
And I think that's deliberate. I think Jesus leaves it open-ended because he's saying, okay, the ball is in your lap. Do you realize that you need God's grace? As I said, there are some of you here, you are the prodigal. And I would encourage you this morning, would you turn from your, your ways? Would you turn from your sinfulness? Your life, if it isn't already, it's going to end up a mess one day because of your sinfulness. Would you turn towards God? Because if you do, you will find that God gives you love and mercy and forgiveness and grace. And he calls you his child. So you may want to use these couple of seconds I'm going to give you to repent of that. But for those of us sitting here today realizing, you know what, I have done all the right things, but I have done them for the wrong reasons. Would you confess that to God? Would you say, God, I am sorry that I have somehow thought that by doing the right things that you are now in debt to me and you owe me something. You don't owe me anything, God. Would you use this time to confess that to God and realize that when you do, he runs out to you as well and he gives you the same love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. So I'm gonna give you a few seconds here to talk to God and then I'll close us with a prayer. Father, I just um, I just feel in my heart right now, God, just to, to pray that just a spirit of, of just repentance, Lord, would just, would just permeate this place, God. Father, we confess. We confess that each of us, like sheep, have gone our own way, Father. Some of us have done it by, by very open rebellion to you. Some of us have done it by secret rebellion to you, doing what you've asked us to do, but all the while resenting it resenting that life hasn't turned out the way that we think it should as a result of our obedience. And so, God, we just confess that to you right now, Lord. And, Father, we ask that, God, we would understand that we don't leave this place feeling guilty when we confess. We leave it today feeling filled with joy because you have forgiven us of that. You forgive the the prodigal. You forgive the sinner. You forgive the Pharisee, God. You forgive us all if we would simply turn to you. And so, Lord, I just pray that just that spirit of confession, of just repentance would just be here in this place, Father. And as we, in a moment, get to take communion, would it be a tangible reminder of your grace towards us? So, God, we we just love you so much. We thank you so much that you, you love us, Father that you do not leave us out in the field by ourselves, but you come and get us, God. And Father, it's just out of gratitude that we, we spend the rest of this morning here together. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.